today's episode, we open our Bibles to Judges chapter 8. Gideon chases down the Midianite kings, Ziba and Zalmunna, across the Jordan. He captures them and kills them for murdering his brothers. Overjoyed with their deliverance, the people call for Gideon to be their king, but he declines, saying Yahweh is their ruler. He dies peacefully after 40 years of leadership, but once again, Israel forsakes Yahweh and worships Baal. Good morning and blessed Holy Week to you. Today is Monday, Thursday, April 6th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. The program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Explore their many offerings of foreign language materials rooted in the Lutheran tradition on their website at lhfmissions.org. That's lhfmissions.org. Well, folks, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help us divide and discern Judges 8. It's the Reverend Dan Grimmer, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Mitchell, South Dakota. Pastor Grimmer, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you, Pastor Boo. It's great to be here. Well, I'm uh, happy to have you on. This is your first time on the program with me, so as I always like to do, I invite you to share with me and the listeners just a little bit about yourself, your congregation, and how God is working through your ministry. Sure. Uh, yeah, well, I've been pastor here at Zion Lutheran in Mitchell, South Dakota for about uh, nearly eight years now. Um, it's been quite a blessing. Um started out as the associate pastor here, and now I'm the senior pastor. So there's been some changes over the years. And uh, just this last year, we got into the vicarage program for the first time. Uh, so we have a, a vicar now that I'm supervising and help uh, help to train. And I guess if, if folks are not familiar with the vicarage program, it's uh, kind of like the, uh, you might say, internship year for a seminary student training to be a pastor. And they come and they practice preaching and teaching Bible study, visitation, uh, kind of the whole works. Um, so that's been a lot of fun for us and for this congregation as we uh, help mentor a young man and uh, help him prepare to become a pastor. Yeah, I think a vicarage program is something that it really is a gift to the church. A lot of congregations will um, be involved with that. Sometimes they're hesitant. I, you know, I'd have to say that one of the problems I see with it is that most of the congregations that can afford to have a vicar are the larger ones, which makes sense. But then mm -hmm. once you get out of seminary, you typically get sent to, well, a little bit more modest-sized congregation. So I'd love to see more congregations expose their vicars to uh, maybe medium and smaller-sized churches, too. I've had the pleasure of having a vicar, too. Um, just for a, a short while, I had an SMP vicar, which is a little bit of a different situation. And I was a mentor to an uh, EIIT uh, pastor. Who, but I think um, oh, you know, okay. all of these things are gifts to the church, and uh, I pray that the vicarage program is going well with, with you. Uh, who is your vicar, by the way? His name is uh, Joseph Greenmeyer, and he is from the Fort Wayne Seminary. Um, yeah, doing a fabulous, fabulous job. Uh, of course, I've got nothing to compare him to, so so maybe he's not. I don't know. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he is. Um, I was, no, he's doing which, a great job. We're very proud of him. Well, speaking of seminaries, which seminary did you come from? Uh, I also went to the Fort Wayne Seminary um, and graduated in 2015. 
Okay, excellent. Yeah, well, we won't hold that against you then, uh, coming from Fort Wayne. <laughs> I'm a St. Louis grad myself, just a few years before you. I came out in 2010, but uh, yeah, you know, sure. we we have two great seminaries that are forming men to be pastors, and it's just always great to support them, and so I'm, I'm just glad that your congregation Absolutely. is doing that vicarage program. Well, uh, you know what? I tell you what, it's... Um, you are from Mitchell, South Dakota, and I was going to move on to prayer, but it just occurred to me that Mitchell, South Dakota, is kind of famous for having what they call a corn palace. Uh, I've never been, but I've seen pictures. What in the world is the yes. corn palace? The corn palace is, uh, well, this will sound very disappointing. It, it's, it's more or less a large gymnasium, uh, really. It's a venue. Um but uh, what 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 makes it a corn palace is every year they have these murals on the outside of the building um, with there's usually a theme for the year and they'll decorate those murals with different colored pieces of corn uh, to form different pictures and and fit in with the theme. I don't know what the theme for this year is. <laughs> I oh. drive by this thing, you know, frequently, but I don't I don't you don't you don't know what you have in your own town, right? You know, you don't you never look at that kind of stuff, so. Um, I did but not it's, it's realize. It's kind of neat. Yeah, I didn't realize they changed the themes because they I'm, yes, I'm they looking change it through, uh, every year. I'm looking yes. through the pictures here online, and I don't know what years these are, but one looks like South Dakota weather. And interestingly yes. enough, it shows a picture of a church with lightning bolts. Yep. The next yep. one has Elvis and uh, and uh, Willie Nelson. So this is Rock of mm-hmm. Ages. Um, yep. American Pride. It features, uh, I guess, the Wesleyan Church. I mean, boy, I, I tell you what, it is yep. an interesting place. But you say inside is more just a venue. It's not like a it's, monument to corn. Or yeah, anything. it's it's basically a large gymnasium, and there's there's kind of some seating. I think the capacity might be maybe about five thousand or something. So they have they have some concerts there, you know, um, basketball tournaments, that kind of thing. Um, so it's it's a nice little venue. It it does draw. Um, you know, a crowd for some of that kind of stuff too. So, well, you are now in Mitchell, South Dakota. We know you went to seminary at Fort Wayne. Where are you from originally? I am originally from a town called Northville, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. Okay. All right. So that's where I grew up. Yep. Well, we're certainly happy to have you out there in the field. And uh, I tell you what, we're happy to have you on the show, but we better get started because we have a lot of verses to get through. Would you start yes, us do. off with some prayer, though? Of course. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this opportunity to study your word. Uh, we pray that it would in, that you would indeed enlighten us through your word, that uh, taking it to heart, your Holy Spirit would, would give us faith to trust your word, um, and that you would continue to point us to your Son, Jesus, the Savior uh, from sin and death forever for all of us. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, well, we are on uh, Gideon, the 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 Judge Gideon, and it's interesting because you have judges like Shamgar who get literally one verse. You have some who get a chapter. Gideon, I think it's like three chapters, but we're toward mm-hmm. the end of all the narratives involving Gideon. Uh, for those who may missed may have missed a couple, you know, would you maybe catch them up to what Gideon has done so far to bring us to where we're at today? Yes. Uh, so um, Gideon comes sometime after um, Deborah and Barak um, and the, I guess, the kind of situation that leads to the call of Gideon is 
um, the the Midianites, a nation that are uh, situated, I believe, kind of southeast of um, of Israel. Um, they we're told that they have oppressed um, Israel for seven years, um, and so the Israelites are crying out to God for deliverance, and God indeed comes to Gideon. Um, probably a young man here, and, and calls him uh, to be the one to deliver uh, Israel from, from these Midianites. Um, Gideon um, begins to assemble an army, and I think we're told that he has maybe about 30,000 men, give or take. Um, and in order that, uh, that the victory would, seem, would uh, be seen as God's and not as Gideon's, um, God has him dismiss some of the men, first the men that are afraid, and then, uh, then the men that uh, um, he has them do this little test, you know, where the ones that lap the water can can remain, and the rest are sent home. And it's only three hundred men against some uh, one hundred and twenty thousand Midianites, as we're going to learn in this chapter today. And uh, they go at night, and they, according to Gideon's uh, instructions, they um, they take uh, fire in jars, and they um, they smash the jars, they blow trumpets. And they cry out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, and uh, and the Lord turns uh, actually the Midianites against each other, and they they really begin to slay each other, um, and Gideon and his army kind of just watch this, um, and so today's chapter is kind of coming on the heels of that victory. Well, and that's where we're at, right? So he's run out the Midianites, but then I guess a new enemy emerges, and that is, well, an enemy amongst themselves. So we are going to read chapter 8, and we're going to, of course, divide it up. We have a quite, a, quite a bit to get through. Let's read chapter 8. Oh, let's read through verse 9. Here we go. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizir? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the three hundred men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when Yahweh has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him, as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Okay, interesting narrative. Uh, you know, Indeed. we have here, of course... There's some success running off the Midianites in the, in the narrative that you just told us. Now they're chasing after the kings, uh, and uh, they're, they're starting to fight within themselves. Beginning there, why this infighting? What, what's going on here? Yeah, well, um, 
So the first the first couple verses here with the um the men of Ephraim, um they are incensed, I guess, that they were not asked uh, to come and fight against the Midianites. It's it kind of reads uh as a maybe their honor has been called into question. Um there's a little bit of a rivalry um here between Ephraim and Manasseh. Gideon is of the tribe of Manasseh, um, being the Ephraim and Manasseh were the two sons of Joseph. Um, so these, there's a little bit of a rivalry, you might say there. Um, and uh, so they're, they seem to be a little bit upset here that, uh, that Gideon has not asked them to um, come out and fight against, uh, against the Midianites. And particularly at the end of the battle, um, when they're kind of wrapping up, they, they do it on their own, um, but, uh, uh, but Gideon did not really ask them to. Um, the second one, the men of Succoth and Penuel, um, yeah, their, their, uh, sin is, is probably the greater, I guess, or, um, it, it, they seem to be more worthless perhaps than their Ephraimite brothers. These are, uh, cities of Gad across the river and, uh, and Gideon is actually not even asking them so much to join the battle as to just, uh, provide uh, supplies for his army as they're chasing these uh, defeated kings and trying to capture them. And they're not even willing to do that. Um, perhaps from uh, cowardice, you know, worried that uh, maybe Gideon hasn't actually won if a decisive victory. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're actually kind of on the border near, nearer to Midian than most of Israel. Uh, maybe they're, they're afraid of reprisal from these kings or something like that. Uh, so yeah, they refuse um, help for Gideon and his army. Well, just for clarity, now these people are not the enemies of the Israelites. These are Israelites that are refusing their own people help because uh, I guess yes. of fear. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, the uh, the the people of uh, of Succoth and Penuel, these two cities. Um, yeah, they, they are of the tribe of Gad. Um, kind of an interesting, I guess, connection or, or contrast with their, their attitude here. Um, back in the book of uh, Numbers, when they were um, first getting ready for the conquest of Canaan, Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh came to Moses and asked that their, uh, their allotment in the, um, in, the, in the land would be east of the Jordan River, the the Israelites had kind of already conquered that. And uh, God allowed that with the provision that those tribes would go over the Jordan, west of the Jordan, and and participate in the conquest with their brothers, with the rest of the nation. Um, and they did. And now here, you know, the battle is, it's not even, the, the original battle, I guess, was was west of the river. But now the the enemy has come to them. And not only are they not, joining in battle with Gideon, uh, which, which really would have been their responsibility. They're not even willing to give him uh, food. You know, they're, they're refusing um, to have any part in, in God's victory over his enemies um, with their fellow Israelites. Yeah. But his response seems, I don't know, like if they won't help him with some bread, then he'll simply retaliate, uh, mm-hmm. by trampling their flesh and tearing down their towers. Uh, you know, it seems yes. like, 
we always are, are told that the you know our resi- our level of resistance should should or level of force I should say against someone should match their resistance. So it, it does seem like I don't want to say an overreaction, but is his penalty against them something that you think is God ordained, or is this just part of the sinful nature of these flawed rescuers? You know, it's a great question. Um, it I think you can I think you can read it. Yes and no, I guess. Um, <laughs> I think I think they they certainly are are worthy of uh, of punishment, not just because they're refusing to help, but um, you know, really, Gideon has has shown himself um, to be uh, called by God uh, just in the in the miraculous nature of his victory. Three hundred men against one hundred and twenty thousand. Um, that's not going to happen except by the Lord's hands. And uh, and the the Ephraimites recognize that um, in the first couple of verses, which is why they're they want to get in get in on this. You know, they they wanted to be part of this victory. Um, that seems to be more the f- faithful response uh, versus this men of Succoth and uh, and Penuel, these two cities of the Gadites that just really seem to um, have no interest in in being part of uh, the Lord's deliverance of His people, and that really is. Uh, a rejection of God ultimately, um, and God's deliverance of them. Um, that's a bad place to be. On the other hand, I do think that um, Gideon's response to that we're we're not told that God has commanded him to do this in any sense. Um, he has a zeal for the Lord, but it it does seem to kind of go too far. Um, it seems more like kind of vengeful wrath, or he's he's vindictive because he's personally been. Um, you know, rejected or something like that. When I think about when Jesus sent out his disciples and he told them basically just to eat what you're given and really don't don't prepare, just be taken care of on your ministry. I look back at this and it seems as though that was at least Gideon's plan, right? He didn't, they were mm-hmm. unprepared in a sense that they didn't have a bunch of supplies um, or, or I guess I guess they could have made their way through the supplies. But it seems to me that Gideon was expecting that they could be taken care of by their fellow kinsmen. So I could also see an yes. argument being made for they're not only not supporting their fellow kinsmen, but because God brings us together in unity to take care of one another, they are absolutely rebelling against God by not taking care of them in that way. And for the worst reason, right? Because it's like, well, we'll yeah. wait till you're successful and then we might help. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Yes. Yeah. You might contrast that perhaps with um, uh, when David, one of the times he's on the run from Saul um, and, and he and his men are hungry um, and the priests actually give them some of the showbread, which is actually really not lawful <laughs> for them, for David and his men to eat because they are not priests. Um, but because of the necessity, they provide for um, for David, um, even knowing that he's on the run from Saul. Um and uh, you know that yeah, this is kind of what God would expect is that uh, His people would would take care of of each other, particularly of somebody who is um, has shown to be uh, in this case, you know, Gideon is a a judge, a deliverer sent from from God. Um, to reject him due to his office is is really to reject God. Well, let's add some more verses to the conversation. I'm going to read verses ten through seventeen. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. 
for there had fallen a hundred and twenty thousand men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbeha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army in a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, seventy-seven men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So we see here within just a couple of paragraphs, uh, Gideon kept his word. He was able, by God's authority, I'm sure, yes. to capture the two kings. Uh, but then he gets this guy of Sukkoth and basically starts literally taking down names. And, the, and these names yes. seem to be maybe the officials, right? They're the ones who made the decision to not help. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is, uh, it is, if you like it, kind of a hit list. Uh, of all the men that uh, that are responsible for the the response of that city, um, and this is where I do think, you know, reading these verses, it, it does seem that Gideon's response is kind of going above and beyond just righteous zeal. To now, you know, he's he's singling out individual people for retribution. Um, you know, it's it's kind of extreme given given the circumstances. Maybe punishing the town. Um, in some way, or um, you know, shaming them, but to to try to this reads to me almost as vindictive to try to find each of these men and make sure that they're you know they're each going to be punished, uh, maybe even really put to death. Um, I think it's yeah. tough because you know we have in Deuteronomy God saying things like "Vengeance is mine," right? Vengeance belongs to mm-hmm. me. I'm going to repay. Uh, we see we see that in Romans and Hebrews too. Uh, and so we think that you think, well, maybe Gideon should have just uh, forgiven and forgotten or understood their pain. And I guess all those things are true. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that it does seem a little uh, vindictive. And perhaps that doesn't belong to Gideon. On the other hand, Gideon was God's duly appointed leader. And therefore, there is what we mm-hmm. might call nowadays a Romans 13 kind of issue, right? Uh, you know, they, they should have right. submitted to their leader. And he, and he, to borrow a phrase from the New Testament, doesn't bear the sword for nothing. Uh, so mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it's tough. It's tough because we can't judge them from our perspective. But I think it's worth bringing up the question, and that is whenever you have Christians or, or godly leaders in positions of government, um, you know, should that, and I think the obvious answer is yes, but should that you know, uh, influence how they govern? And here he is exercising his right as the leader, whether we agree with it or not. Yes, I think that's very true. Um, you know, and a lot of times we read these accounts in the Old Testament, and they, and they do seem harsh, uh, maybe by modern standards. Um, but, um, you know, if you, if you recognize the kind of the situation that Israel is in, um, they've taken over the promised land, of course, if the conquest through Joshua was I think, probably a couple hundred years before this, but... Um, they continue to be harassed by enemies on all sides. And um, if, 
if the men of the nation are being cowards um, and not uh, not willing to fight against Israel's enemies, you know that that's that's actually a, a hazard. You're really a hazard for the whole nation. They're putting everybody at risk. Um, they're failing to do their duty, and they're rejecting God's uh, chosen servant. Um, that that's not a small thing. You know that that really is a that really is a major sin. And uh, and Gideon does, as you said, he does kind of bear the sword as a. Uh, Really, for all intents and purposes, he is he is kind of the leader of the nation, um, the uh, the kingdom of the left, you know, the the political and and military leader. So this is kind of his prerogative to um, to govern as he see fits at this point. Right, and we don't want to give it away, but they're going to see him as a as a pretty good candidate to be their leader for a while. But we're going to get there Indeed. in a little bit. Uh, just a couple more things before the break. Verses sixteen and seventeen, where he meets out the punishment he promised. Uh, and perhaps you don't have any more insight on it than I do, but it says he took the elders of the city and he took the thorns and briars and taught the men a lesson. Um, does that suggest to you that he really just, I guess, um, whipped them and, and for lack of a better word, as opposed to maybe killing them? Yeah, well, some of the things I read on this um, really suggested that that's actually probably just a polite euphemistic mm. way um, to describe what he really did, which was probably like scourge them to death. Okay. You know, they, they actually died from this. Um, I mean, we're not directly told that. However, in verse 17, we are told that he killed the men of Penuel. So for, for more or less the same crime, you know, they, they both had refused to give uh, food and drink to his army. Um, so if he was being kind of just and fair, uh, he probably would have treated them the same. And if he killed the men of Penuel, he probably did kill the men of Succoth as and, well. And would you agree um, that it's probably in both cases just the, I guess, the leaders who made this decision, like not all the men of the city or anything like that, but just the, say, the predominant men or the, the leaders, the officials, that, that right. seems to be the one who he meets out the punishment toward. Yeah, they they do bear responsibility uh, as elders um, for the actions of their city, and uh, um, yeah, and so Gideon seems to hold them responsible. And maybe that is the purpose of the list too, is to make sure that um, I guess maybe maybe reading that in a, a little bit kinder light is to make sure that he's meeting out justice to the people who really are responsible, and not you know to just any old man or young man of the city, um, but really the, the men that did make this decision. I mean, we're not told, of course, but I imagine that on the fringes, you know, there are people who are probably trying to help the best they can, but we have, in contrast, the leaders who are afraid. And, and I think that's such a lesson for us even today as we look to leaders to guide and, well, lead us, we have to also make sure that they're leading us in the right ways. And while they Absolutely. may be the ones who endure the punishment or the chastisement from God, we also have a duty to not just follow leaders into ungodly action, which anybody who says, well, we're not going to feed our army because, you know, these 77 men told us not to, well, they would probably bear some responsibility. You know, this really does boil down to that sometimes you obey God rather than men, but I don't want to make too fine of a point on it either. Yeah, well, I, I think that's true, and I think uh, you know there. It, it would be it would be nice if you read in this account that you know there were individual residents of these cities that, despite their leaders, uh, chose to help. I mean, we certainly see that 
kind of thing going on in the Old Testament. Um, maybe think of Rahab and Jericho, you know, helping the two spies and that kind of thing. Um, even though their leaders tell them not to, they they know the right thing to do. Um, but we're we're not given that here. So, uh, yeah, I guess in action, even in the case of your your government or your your leaders telling you not to do something, if you know it is indeed the right thing to do, um, you're not you're not totally guiltless. You 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 bear some responsibility too. Well, just a few more verses in this part of the narrative, chapter 8, verses 18 through 21. Here we go. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the son of my mother. As Yahweh lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether his firstborn, Rise, and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Uh, you know, it. this is almost uh, some dialogue and some quips suitable for an action movie, because he says... He says to his son, kill them, and, and of course he doesn't. He's afraid, and the two kings are like, kill us yourself if you're, you know, and then he does. He's like, okay, fine. <laughs> so yeah. uh, just a, all besides that, you know, I'm interested to hear your take on it, but also I guess I'm focused a little bit on the crescent ornaments on their ha- camels. I mean, everything yeah. else seems self-explanatory, but what is that about? It, it does seem interesting, um, the crescent ornaments. That, I mean, that sticks out to me, too. Um, I, I mean, when crescent moon stuff, I instantly think Islam. And of course this is, um, you know, many centuries before the rise of Islam. Um, but you know, I, I think it kind of the same part of the world, um, there is kind of a, a reverence, even idolatrous worship probably in this case as well of the moon. Um, the moon is kind of used maybe to, you know, to guide, um, you know, especially as there these, probably traders, you know, a lot of these Midianites. Um, and so they're traveling um, probably often by night because it's it's hot and it's, you know, desert land. And um, the moon is really essential if you are going to travel by night or, or or orient yourself at night. Um, so perhaps there's, I, I couldn't tell for sure reading through uh, through some of the literature if there is necessarily an idolatry thing with these crescent moons or... Um, or if they're just really just our ornamentation, but they do seem to mark out the camels and the the spoil as belonging to these Midianites and not, you know, maybe articles that they stole from the Israelites or something like that. Yeah, what I've read um, uh, just sort of punts and says, okay, it probably just signified that these belong to the king. And while I actually believe that's probably true, I, I like your take on it because there are plenty of moon gods and goddesses that they would have worshipped, and so it definitely could be a both and in this case. Well, folks, I tell you what, well, actually, we're going to take a break because we're right up against the time. So, folks at home, don't go anywhere. When we get back, Pastor Grimmer and I will keep on going through Judges 8. We're going to talk about Gideon's ephod and the death of Gideon. Don't go anywhere. We'll see you on the other side.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Brooke. With me today is the Reverend Dan Grimmer, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Mitchell, South Dakota. Folks, thank you for tuning in this morning as we make our way through Judges. I encourage you to email me at pastorboo at gmail.com with your feedback, or you can find me on Facebook to ask questions or just say hello. And while I've got your attention, I want to ask you for a favor. If you enjoy listening to Thy Strong Word, would you be so kind as to share your love of the show with your friends and family? Thy Strong Word can be heard on the radio in St. Louis, live or on demand at KFUO.org, or through the KFUO app, or as a podcast. There's so many ways to keep in touch with the program. I'm just so encouraged that you tune in and grow in faith with me and my guests each weekday, so I want to tell you thank you. Well, now, Pastor, we just finished up before the break with talking about these two Midianite kings who finally met their demise at the hands of Gideon. And so now the people are probably elated. Not only has the Midianite army been dispatched, the kings themselves have been conquered. He's got the ornaments from their camels to prove it. Uh, anything else about that part before we move on to the second half of our chapter? Well, uh, I guess just one kind of comment about the um, Gideon asking his his son to kill the, the two kings. Um you know, this this may be something that um, Gideon's doing to try to kind of shame these kings. You know, this this young man who's who's probably never killed a man before is going to be the one to kill them. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, uh, you know, it says he's afraid, so he's he's not not willing to do that. And uh, and they do kind of taunt him so that Gideon has to be the one to do it, um, which is appropriate. You know, it it really is. If you know, if he's going to um, pass the sentence, then he he really ought to uh, to take responsibility for that and do that. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting that Gideon, you know, it, you almost get a sense from that, you know, there's there's a little bit of a change here going on in Gideon where where he is taking his his authority or his um, his position a little too far, and he's you know he's trying to kind of work in some of these things to maybe. Um, maybe be seen as a, you know, a greater leader, a ruler, um, than, than he really is. Sure. Um, there, there's kind of, there's kind of a shift, I guess, starting to happen with Gideon as he, uh, wraps up his victory over Midian. Well, and, and one commentator mentions that maybe the reason why he invites his son to, to do the deed was to kind of give that glory to his son, to pass it down so that, you know, I think of David and Saul, you know, and, Saul's killed his thousands and mm-hmm. his tens of thousands. So it, it's this idea that, that um, of course, that's much later, but it's this idea that, you know, Gideon's saying he wants to share, I guess, this, uh, not authority, but this glory with his with sure. his son. And his son's sure. just a kid, whatever that means, right? He could be 30. Right. But, but he's, 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 he's just a boy, and he doesn't want to do it. And, of course, Gideon does it himself. But, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating detail, and yeah. it always makes you wonder, like, why did the author include that? What are we supposed to learn? Is it is it just a detail, or is there something to it? Yeah, yeah. 
interesting to contemplate anyway. Absolutely. Well, we're going to read now the next part, which is verses 22 through 28. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. Yahweh will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was seventeen hundred shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garnets worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Orphrah, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. All right, so back to the top, though. They basically said, okay, you know, you rule, you rule over us now. You, I, I assume they're asking him to be their king. Mm-hmm. Indeed, that's, I, I believe that is what they're asking. Um, and Gideon, of course, declines that honor. Um, he says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. Yahweh will rule over you, uh, which is very pious, or at least sounds very pious. Um, I think it is. In fact, I, um, you know, I did read something from uh, Martin Luther where he, he really does take that as um, Gideon saying, no, I, I don't want to be king. Um, God really is our king. Um, there's no need for me to to have this title and have this um, have this uh, um, I guess extra extra authority attached to me. You know, um, although in reality, uh, Gideon really is the king, uh, maybe without the title, but in the way people treat him and his authority, and maybe maybe one way we could perhaps read that he's not being um, completely. Uh, genuine there not to not to skip ahead but one of his sons he names abimelech which means my father is king oh, okay. uh so there there is kind of a little bit of a well you know m- maybe he means that maybe he maybe that maybe that's a little later that he you know the power kind of goes to his head but um there's kind of there's a piety there but maybe it's it's starting to shift into a little bit of a an appearance of piety rather than uh you know really really truly believing that. Well, and I guess just to spin it the other way as I'm thinking about it, <clears throat> Gideon, as you said, is by all, you know, by all uh, intents and purposes, is king. He, he rules over them. He is their ruler. Uh, but there is something to be said about the monarchy that would spread to his son, even though God has not raised up his son. So, so regardless of his intentions, it is obviously a good thing that he says, I'm not going to basically set up a, a kingship over you, and my son's right. not going to rule over you. Because when they do end up with kings, God, of course, God will warn them against it, but God is the one who gets to pick the kings. But mm-hmm. when he makes this request that they collect all these earrings, and it's like 75 pounds of gold, uh, besides all the other fancy stuff, he makes it into an ephod, and um, mm-hmm. 
it says that the people of Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare. So give me the give me your opinion on his intentions. Is, is this just to be a monument that kind of went out of control and turned into almost a god? Was he wanting it to be worshipped? What what is actually going on here? Yeah, there there's a couple of different ways I think uh, somebody could take this. Um, uh, this is, by the way, I think probably one of the most interesting things um, in this chapter as we're kind of wrapping up really Gideon's life. Um, so, so Gideon does indeed rule over them uh, basically the rest of his life uh, for some 40 years. And uh, so he takes, yeah, he takes these golden earrings. Um, it's 1,700 shekels of gold, quite a lot of gold, and he uses it to make an ephod. Um, an ephod is a garment that was typically worn by the high priest of Israel, and God gave instructions for making the ephod for the high priest to wear it. Uh, part of that is um, in the ephod, in the, in the breastplate, which is a, a part of the ephod, there are these uh, two stones called Urim and Thummim, uh, if I'm pronouncing those correctly. Um, and the, those stones were um, used sometimes for God to reveal his will. Uh, we don't know exactly how that worked, but it, you almost get the sense maybe like the high priest pulls his, puts his hand in his breastplate and pulls out a stone. And if it's Urim, it means yes. And if it's Thummim, it means no, or something like that. Um, or sometimes people are chosen by lots, maybe by the Urim and Thummim. Um, so I, I think one way to read this is that uh, Gideon is, um, he, he declines the kingship, um, but he actually kind of wants to be the, the prophet and priest, uh, the one to speak on behalf of God, which, you know, he had been called by God to, to be the uh, military um, judge, the, the savior, basically, the, the leader of the army and the, the one through whom God would deliver the people. Um, and so maybe King would actually be a little bit more of a natural role uh, to what God had called him. Uh, but he declines that out of piety, but then ends up kind of taking a, a vocation that really is not his. He is not the high priest. Um, and so one way to read this is that, yeah, he's, he's kind of almost setting up an, an alternative uh, worship, you know, or at least an alternative kind of prophetic office through him where he's going to put on this ephod and he's going to, tell people what God's will is in, in all matters. Um, we could also just read it as it is just something he sets up um, to, to worship, you know, just, just kind of rank idolatry. Um, I, I kind of, I guess I kind of tend towards the former opinion that, you know, maybe, and maybe even had kind of pious intentions at first thinking that, um, you know, the, the state of the, of the priesthood in the temple is, is in, shambles at various times in Israel's history. And we're not really told what it's like in Gideon's time, but maybe honestly, the priests are a little derelict in their duties. And so he's maybe even kind of piously at first trying to, to take that role onto himself, but, um, but it's not given to him. Um, and so this does become kind of an idolatrous thing for the people. Well, and it being an ephod uh, or a vest or breastplate or however we can envision that, this isn't necessarily like an idol or a statue. It's something that would be worn. So it, what I hear you saying is that it, it wasn't necessarily the item itself, but what it represented. And so he has this ephod made right. in his hometown, which is Ophrah. And mm -hmm. then I guess 
there, he was hoping to, I guess, be given these special revelations by <laughs> cosplaying as the high priest. And and therein is the <laughs> Pretty issue. Pretty much. Yeah. Yes. Well, and that's sad, too, because, you know, when it says that Israel prostituted after or whored after, um, it wasn't too long ago that we were making our way through Hosea, so we got used to that word here on this show. But the people were um, spiritually unfaithful to God. And so there certainly is in that connotation here more than just a, well, the people were enamored with it or they really liked it or it's like going up to the Corn Palace. Everybody wants to make a make a trip to it to see it. Is that they actually were giving spiritual devotion to whatever was going on revolving around this ephod. So I definitely agree with you that some more than what's being told, it's really signifying something that's a, a greater sin than even him taking on himself as king. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's, you know, maybe maybe a lesson in that too. That um, you know, it especially when we try to take on um, something that is not our vocation, um, you know, maybe, for example, um, the vocation of pastor uh, is to preach God's word publicly and to, and to administer the sacraments. That is not given to everybody. And if that is not uh, the vocation that God has called you to, um, it is it is wrong to do so, right? And and there there can be issues with that, um, and that's true for any vocation. As a pastor, it's not right for us to assume uh, the role of uh, mayor or governor or president or you know any of these other um, political roles. That's that's a different vocation. Um, they have their responsibilities, and God works through that, and we have ours, and God works through that. Uh, really, in every legitimate vocation, God calls you to something. Um, and not to other things. And, and you really, God expects us to, to fulfill our responsibilities of our vocation and not, uh, not veer into someone else's. I think that's a very important point. You know, pastor is a part of our world, and as pastors, we, we do see the, the transgressions that people make when they start trying to perform functions of the pastor. But it's also important for the pastors out there listening that, just as you said, we have to keep in our lines too. You know, God has sort of mm-hmm. woven us together in this beautiful community, this whole life, which is made up of different vocations. And it only works if you are content with where God has put you. Now, not to mean you can't aspire to something different or better, but so long as you are walking in a vocation God's given you, that's where you should walk. Uh, and it's that contentment that I see at the heart of his sin. I mean, Gideon was this extremely well respected, powerful leader, one so much so that. The people literally wanted to raise him up as king, and in a way, he wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted something—is it better? I don't know, but it's just different. He wanted something different. And it kind of reminds me of um, that—it's not quite an urban legend, but it's not as prevalent as people think. But uh, with George Washington at the beginning, and during the Revolutionary War, there was a lot uh, lot of contentions in the army— and um, a guy named Colonel Louis Nicola on 1782 uh, wrote him a letter saying that he should become king, that there should be a there should be a a monarchy it would be more stable than a republic. And Washington was extremely angry. He rejected the idea of becoming a king, um, and then he rebuked the guy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, yep. I've always heard this story as everybody wanted him to become king, and he refused. That's not actually the truth. But still, it's it's kind of the same thing, right? I mean, here you have Washington, who is um, 
redeeming people through his own judging during the American War or Revolutionary War. And uh, mm-hmm. people are eager to be unified, and they say, well, then just become our king. It's kind of what they knew. In some, yeah. in some ways, I, I see that going on here. Uh, so I feel like the people were earnest in their desire, but even the people, this is a hint at their discontentment with what God has given them, which was not a monarchy, but a theocracy. Yes, exactly. Um, maybe coming out, you know, the, another similarity between those two things, you know, coming out of the American Revolution um, or Gideon coming out of this Midianite oppression is you look to these men to deliver you in a time of crisis, and uh, and they do, which is excellent. And in this case, with Gideon, God-given, of course. Um, yet that doesn't necessarily mean that um, they're going to be great peacetime rulers or that, uh, you know, that they're they're not perfect, um, but they're they're often accorded kind of um, almost you know uh, heroic or even godlike kind of status because of the the crisis that they let us out of, and uh, we ought to be careful of that. I mean, it it is good to be thankful for um, when God gives us good rulers that that lead us out of crisis, but um, we have to be careful what we're setting up and and what kind of uh, precedent we're setting, you know, for even for them as we get later on into their, into their rule, um, much less their successors. I think you make an excellent point. And I, I don't want us to get mired down in recent political stuff, but I can't help but think about so-called America's mayor. Uh, Post 9-11, uh, Mayor Rudy Giuliani was just beloved by people all across the country, uh, left and right, liberal and, and conservative, um, and because he, well, probably did a pretty good job uh, immediately following that tragedy and people mm-hmm. looked to him and he was, you know, very magnanimous and people liked him. Well, whether you like him or not today, you have to admit that now amongst a lot of the population, people don't like him for different reasons. Right. And and it's kind of like this, you know, how quickly he fell, whether you think he fell or not, but how quickly I should say the the, the public opinions was swayed were swayed. And it also, I guess, to me, comes back to that idea of never meet your heroes, uh, because at the end of the day, they're going to be flawed human beings. And one thing we've learned time and again from going through judges is that while these were redeemers, they were flawed redeemers. And certainly they point forward to the great, perfect redeemer in Christ, but they're not it. And so they're going to make mistakes. and, And that's part of the lesson here. Anything Absolutely. else before we move on to the death of Gideon? No. Okay, so we're going to read the rest of the chapter, which is verses 29 through 35. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Abimelech, pardon me. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Orphrah of the Abyssalites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal-berith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember Yahweh their god, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. All right, so he uh, 
you know, has 70 sons, 71 if you count the one through his concubine. And mm-hmm. uh, that's a that's a lot of kids. Uh, they, I guess it, they planned on being ruled for a long time. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but he died in a good old age, it says, but does not tell us his age. I don't know if it's anywhere else in the scripture, uh, but then he's buried in a tomb. What happens then, though, right? We see, we've seen this story before. Yeah, it, well, it, uh, sadly, as is kind of the cycle really with every single judge, uh, the people are, um, well, somewhat faithful, although, you know, you, I kind of think you get the sense even in Gideon's life, you know, they're, they're starting to have this idolatry, uh, some form of idolatry with the ephod thing, but definitely by the time uh, that Gideon dies, um, they just fully relapse into worship of the balls. Um, it even says there in verse 33, they may ball bereath their God, um, which means um, something like ball of the covenant. Um, so kind of drawing on the language of covenant, God had made a covenant with his people, right? His promise to them, uh, first to Abraham and then to his descendants to be their God, to bless the families of the earth through um, their offspring, who is ultimately Jesus. This is a um, this is a wicked twisting in use of that language. That the people are making a covenant with Baal, with this false god, that he's going to be the one uh, to provide for them and, and care for them. So it's um, it's very much a uh, a relapse. And if if you remember the very beginning of the story of Gideon too, that. Worship of the balls was uh, was going on um, at the very beginning before Gideon was even called to be a judge, and he um, he actually cuts down the Asherim pole and tears down um, the altar to to the balls. So he he starts out. That's that's actually he gets how he gets this name Jeroboam. Um, you know, he kind of tears out the the worship of of the balls. But now as he dies. Uh, his life's work in that respect is is completely undone, sadly. It reminds me of them lifting up the idol while Moses is still up on the mountain and says, Behold, Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You know, the yep. same thing going on here, right? Here's Baal, the one who made the covenant with you. And oh, what a twisting. But I, I can't help but connect that to our world today that says how much of God's true and perfect word has been combined with the the desires of our hearts and the and the religions of uh, false gods, and, and so we see versions of Christianity which are really just like this Baal Barith. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, yeah. I I think there's uh, a lot of ways that we, especially maybe in in kind of a post Christendom context like we live in, that we uh, we use even some of the language of Christianity, but really for um, worship of all kinds of of false things um very much like the balbarith idea where it's a uh the, the word for that comes to mind is is syncretism which means um you know kind of combining two religions together into one and and that's i think kind of what happens well quite a bit in, in the book of judges and other parts of the old testament it's it's not a not an outright rejection of god at least not on the surface um, it's, it's, it's combining, it's, it's a syncretism that's, you know, trying to keep some of that language, but, but, uh, really twist it to the worship of, uh, of a false God. Well, brother, it's been enjoyable talking with you. We have one minute left in the program. Anything else you want to share before we go? 
Yeah, I, uh, I think uh, Gideon is is a fascinating figure. Just uh, just as we look at kind of the, the progression of the book of Judges, too, um, the first several judges in the book really are very godly men. Um, not not that they're without sin or anything, but uh, we're kind of seeing a, a progression. Gideon's a mixed a mixed bag. You know, he's he's got some wonderful uh, uh, wonderful piety, wonderful good things he does, but uh, but he also kind of um, falls in by his own pride kind of at the end of his, of his life. And then we, we kind of see kind of a, a general digression or, or, um, each of the judges is kind of going to have more of those flaws come to the forefront, which does kind of set up the need maybe for a King. Um, and ultimately we're going to get a good King and King David, then a bunch of flawed Kings. Um, but to prepare the way really, for all of God's people to see that the the only perfect king, the only perfect leader and ruler we have is our Lord Jesus, um, who who does all things well, who uh, has saved us from sin and death, and and who is the, the perfect Gideon um, to save us from our enemies. Well, wonderfully put. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dan Grimmer, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Mitchell, South Dakota. Pastor, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Tomorrow, folks, on Good Friday, we'll have a special free text First Friday episode of Thy Strong Word. It's going to feature two guests, the Reverend Chris Amon and Jesse Baker. We'll be stepping away from the Book of Judges just for one episode to discuss Jesus' final words from the cross. Catch it when it airs at 11 a.m. or on demand. And then when we return on Easter Monday, we'll pick up where we left off in Judges with Chapter 9. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong hand.